So some days are like, you know, a one, maybe two cup of coffee day. That'll get you through. And there are other days that are, you know, significantly more cups of coffee than that. Everybody and welcome to episode number 012, episode number 12 of The Gorman Limit. I'm your host, Neil Gorman, and this podcast, episode number 12, is coming out very, very quickly after episode number 11 came out. Why is that? Well, here's the deal. I recorded episode number 11 and I mixed it, and I edited it, did all that stuff. And I put it out, and, you know, I, th- I felt good about it. I was like, ah, that's not so bad. That'll get the job done. But then I kept on thinking about that episode, or maybe not that episode. I kept on thinking about the things that I talked about on that episode. And I decided that the reason I was continuing to kind of ruminate on those topics was because there was still more that I wanted to say about them. And that is why I'm recording this episode, episode number 12, so very soon after recording and releasing episode number 11. I still have things that I want to say about the topics of uh, jouissance and uh, the topic of uh, negativity or lack and, you know, the the topic of drive, uh, that's the other big one that I talked about, right? Yeah, jouissance, negativity, and drive, i.e. death drive. So that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit more on this episode of The Gorman Limit. Be that as it may, uh, I want to stress this. This is probably obvious, but just in case it's not. Yeah, if this is like the first episode of The Gorman Limit that you've ever listened to, probably not the best place to start. You it would be a good idea to go back and listen to episodes number 10 and 11 before you listen to this episode, because this episode very much builds on the content from those previous two. All right. Now with that out of the way, let's go ahead and get started with this episode of The Gorman Limit. Okay, so let's get started here. Uh, in episode number 10, 010 of The Gorman Limit, I spent a lot of time talking about jouissance, the concept of jouissance. And what I said in that episode, very briefly, quick recap here, is that jouissance uh, means enjoyment. That's usually how it gets translated into English. Jouissance is an experience that we feel and we feel it in our body. 
our body is the thing that is kind of like the Geiger counter for jouissance, right? You know, Geiger counters are those things that if they get near something that's radioactive, they start going kick, 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 right? Those sorts of things. Um, so if jouissance is like some sort of radioactive material, our body is like a Geiger counter. It picks up the jouissance and, and feels the jouissance. The jouissance is registered, felt, and experienced in our body. Why am I harping on that so much? It's a super important point. It's super important because um, what I think people a lot of times kind of fail to realize about why people do some of the crazy stuff they do it's because of jouissance. And I don't think that people really get that jouissance is something that is felt in the body. And I think if they did understand that, they might actually try to kind of get people to not do crazy things in ways that are different than the than what they're doing currently. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a, in a moment, but let me bounce back here. So jouissance is enjoyment. We feel it in the body. And the other point that I made in episode 10 about jouissance is that jouissance is addictive. Uh, I think this is this is my opinion here. Uh, I'm not making a claim to that this is a fact. This is how I look at things. So you can share this opinion or not up to you. But um, we're all addicts. Everybody, you, me, everybody we know, we're all addicts to something. Now, some people are addicts in the conventional sense of the word, where they're they're addicted to something like alcohol or a drug, or something like that, opiates, cocaine, heroin, etc. Uh, if somebody's that kind of a drug addict, if they're addicted to something like alcohol or heroin or whatever, using that drug is something that gives their body the physical sensation of enjoyment of jouissance. Okay? That's something that we could see very clearly. Now, there's a lot of people who are not alcoholics or drug addicts. Be that as it may, my claim is, that those people are also addicts to something. They're, they're, everybody is addicted to whatever it is that brings the experience of jouissance into their body. Uh, there's a term that gets used a lot in psychoanalytic thought. It's called the mode of jouissance. The mode of jouissance is the way that everybody goes about getting whatever it is that brings the experience of jouissance into their body. For some people, we call them adrenaline junkies. They get the experience of jouissance from doing super dangerous stuff. Doing that stuff fills their body with this like thrill, this super addictive adrenaline rush thing. That is their mode of jouissance. For other people, their mode of jouissance might be saving money. All right. They could, yeah, they could, they get money. They don't spend it. Nope. Not going to spend the money that they have. No, no, no. That would be not giving them a lot of enjoyment. What gives them enjoyment is taking that money and kind of squirreling it away somewhere and like their investments and their bank account, saving it for a rainy day. Uh, and they just kind of let the money sit there. And they just, you know, these are the kind of person you can imagine them, I suppose, kind of like opening up their laptop or taking out their phone and just looking at their account balances and being like, yeah, I've got a lot of money. That would be their mode of jouissance. That would, when they see those balances, when they see those numbers, and they they realize that, like, I don't know, they've uh, they've accumulated their investments have accumulated more interest over the the from the last time that they looked at their investments. If they were to see that, and that gave them that that bodily sense of like, yeah, you know, they they'd be like, oh, that's good. That would be their mode of jouissance. For other people, 
their mode of jouissance could be having other people need them. Uh, when uh, Imagine a social worker. I teach in a school of social work, and I think this is actually rather common among social workers. I think a lot of social workers have a version of what I'm about to describe as their mode of jouissance. There's some people that really, 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 really like it when somebody says to them, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I, I couldn't get through this thing that I'm going through without you. You have helped me. I need you to help me, right? When somebody gets that, for some people, that's actually very satisfying. That fills them with jouissance. So there you go. Jouissance is something that we're all addicted to in some way. At least that's my claim, okay? Now, the other thing I talked about in episode number 10 of The Gorman Limit is I made this kind of comparison, and I said that jouissance is like water that flows down the mountain. Uh, it, it's And when I, when I was making that comparison, the reason I, I like it so much is that it, it kind of, I think, illustrates that jouissance is something that is kind of always in motion, like water. It's always flowing. The question about jouissance, I think, a lot of times is where does the jouissance flow? What is it flowing into? And as I just stated, I think that, that jouissance being something that we're addicted to, it that means that whatever our mode of jouissance is, that that is a very habit-forming thing for us. We habitually repeat the things that bring our bodies an experience of jouissance. If we do something, whatever it is, if that something creates an experience of jouissance in our bodies, that tends to mean that we will attempt to recreate that experience again in the future and that we won't just want to recreate it one time, that we'll try to recreate it again and again and again and again. As long as it continues to bring us some form of jouissance, we will continue to attempt to repeat the experience that brings us jouissance. If that experience is saving money, we'll try to save more money. If that experience is helping other people, we'll try to help other people. If that experience is getting high, we'll get high. But that's the idea here. That's that You can imagine that as the, the way that jouissance as water kind of flows down a mountain. And as it flows, you know, it kind of cuts out this groove uh, that turns into a river. The, the river is this very deep groove and the water can very easily flow through that groove. It's easier for the water to flow through that groove than it is for it to take some other path down the mountain. And the longer that we repeat whatever it is that brings us jouissance, the deeper that groove gets and the easier it is for us to kind of fall into that same kind of repetitive way of, of doing things and stuff in our lives. And this is where I want to revisit the concept of death drive. I think that for a lot of people, too many people, for a lot of people, jouissance flows into paths that kind of correlate with the death drive. I want to explain that to you a little bit more here. I, you know, in the work that I've done as a, a social worker, as a psychoanalyst, as a clinician in, in different places doing different things, one of the things that I've seen a lot is that there are tons and tons and tons of people who have a mode of jouissance which is creating a lot of problems in their life. Their mode of jouissance is destroying their bodies. It's destroying their finances. It's destroying their careers. It's destroying their families and other relationships, so on and so forth. And yet they can't seem to stop themselves from engaging in that mode of jouissance. I think 
that for so many people, jouissance flows into a path that correlates, like I said, with the death drive. What I mean by that is that the things that bring people satisfaction, the things that give them that experience of jouissance, are things that have this destructive effect on all the things that I just mentioned. They're things that kind of make death happen faster, that make destruction happen more. That's the kind of things that I see a lot of people being addicted to. And this is one of the things that I think people oftentimes miss about the death drive. When I teach about the death drive in classes, a lot of people go, this is crazy. You're, it seems like you're saying, Professor Gorman person, that people really like doing things that destroy their body and that destroy other things that are important to them. Is that what you're saying? And I say, yes, yes, that's what I'm saying. And, and the, the people look at me, they scratch their heads and they go, that doesn't make sense. And I go, but it does. It does make sense. And then I try to explain it like I'm doing now. When we do certain things that have a destructive effect, when we do things that kill our bodies, that kill our relationships, that kill our careers, they actually, especially in the moment that we're doing them, feel good. They give us a major hit of jouissance when we're doing them. I'm going to give you some examples. Imagine that you are in an argument with somebody who matters to you. You know, this could be a really close friend. It could be your parent. It could be your kid. It could be your romantic partner, your boss. I don't know. Just imagine somebody who matters to you. And imagine that you've gotten into an argument with them. And the argument heats up. It gets more intense gradually. And at a certain point, you think of something that you could say to this person that would like really make your point and simultaneously make the person who you're arguing with feel really, really bad, right? You, you have this thing that you can say and you can like, you can really stick it to them. And you know, if you do it, like it's, it's going to work. Like you're going to, you're going to really hurt this other person and you say it. You know, you say it because you're, you're fired up. You're angry in the moment. You're like, ah, you say the thing. And what happens is you see the effect of your words. You say whatever you say and, and you see the, the face of the person you say it to and you, you recognize that moment where your words land and they, they just like, maybe land isn't the right word. They crash into something. They cut into the person who you're arguing with and they hurt them. A lot of people... In that moment, they feel exhilarated. They feel like, yeah, I got them, right? Now, right after that, you might feel bad. That oftentimes does happen. But in the moment itself, ooh, you feel good. You feel like you've made your point. You got them. You won. You won the argument by just like, just saying this thing that is just like that, that thing that just makes the other person kind of like crumple. In the moment, it feels really, really good, I think. Some other examples uh, of this. Eating food, which is really bad for our bodies, in the moment that we're eating it, a lot of times we're like, oh, this this piece of pizza, this donut, this Dairy Queen blizzard, whatever it is. It's, it's like, oh, this is great. I'm so glad I'm doing this. In the moment, you feel that. Now, fast forward time a little bit, you probably are like, I probably shouldn't have done that. But in the moment... It's like, oh, yeah, this feels really, really good. It's great. I'm glad I'm doing this, right? And it's, it's having a negative effect on our bodies. But as we do it, we, we feel really good. Uh, one last example, spending money on something that you don't need, right? 
you've had a bad day, maybe a string of bad days, you log on to Amazon.com, you see something, you're like, oh, I, I, could, I could have that. And so you think, ah, what the hell? And you buy it, right? Now, and, and then, then you wait for it to come and it comes and you open the box and you have your thing. Uh, this is stuff that in the moment can feel really good. You might not actually have the money to buy the thing or it might mean that you know you don't have as much money for other things that you probably need it for. But in the moment, man, spending that money, blowing that money on some thing that you're not going to need, ooh, that's, that's fun. That feels good. All of this is, I think, an example of the death drive in action. The death drive, in indulging the death drive, doing things that are in line with, congruent with the death drive, as we do them, they do feel really good because they're so infused with jouissance. Like the death drive is a, a thing, it's a groove that the, the fluid of jouissance, the water of jouissance can flow into so smoothly and so easily, right? That's the way that the death drive is. It is one of the primary ways that I think jouissance flows for a ton of different people. It flows into the path that has been carved by the death drive. And it makes that water just rush really fast down that mountain. Uh, what happens when we get to the, when the water gets to the bottom of the mountain? We die. So the death drive is something that can really hasten that that process, and it does that by making the things that have this destructive effect very very feel very good. That's what it does. That's how it works. And this is where the the concept of negativity or lack, I think, is going to come in to the discussion that I'm trying to have here. So in the last episode, I talked about how negativity is not doesn't mean just like bad, that it means missing something, not having something, lacking something. And I was suggesting that the things that we don't have, the things that we lack, the things that we um, want to have but don't have, that those are the things that are actually the primary motivators of the vast amount of human behavior that we see in the world, as opposed to things being motivated by what we already have acquired or what we've already, you know, uh, achieved or gotten in some other way, right? That's, that's the idea that I was trying to make here. So what I want to do now is I want to make the suggestion that lack is actually a really important clinical tool, uh, a really important tool that can be used to help sort of redirect the, the flow of jouissance away from the very easy path carved out by the death drive and redirect Jouissance towards other things. And it doesn't always work this way, right? Like I'm not trying to suggest that lack is always a good thing because to suggest that would be ludicrous. But what I am suggesting is that lack is definitely not always a bad thing. And that sometimes, 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 lack can be used as a way to sort of like build a dam and in the flow of jouissance and then redirect it in some other area. And that's what I want to talk about going forward. Lack is something that is super, super useful. If, 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 if we can kind of like Goldilocks amount the lack in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next segment. So let's do a little bit of transition music. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the power of lack.
Okay, so to start this section of the podcast, which I think is probably going to be the most important section, uh, I probably should have just started with this, but I'm one of those people who has a hard time just kind of like getting to the point. I need to pontificate for a while before I can get to the point. It's kind of a problem. But anyways, here's this is the most important section of the podcast, I think, because it focuses on negativity or lack. And what I want to do is I want to describe a couple of different things. First, I want to describe how lack, how negativity can be used by the death drive in service of the death drive to kind of convince people in a way to do things that make their death more fast, that make death come faster than it normally would, um, or that makes destruction, destroying things, really, really, really appealing. That's the the first thing I want to do. And I kind of want to talk about that in two different ways. I want to talk about extreme instances, and I want to talk about less extreme instances where lack can kind of hasten death, where, where lack can empower the death drive, as it were. And then after talking about that, what I'm going to try to do is talk about ways that lack can be mobilized in such a way that it actually kind of acts as a braking system on the death drive and the effect being that it it ends up lack ends up prolonging life that's the plan here but let's start with the extreme examples here so the this is one of the things i want to make uh, as clear as i possibly can here is that you know I've taught about this in a couple of different classes a couple of different times and one of the things that comes up when I teach about lack and when I teach about sort of the the clinical power of mobilizing lack I think I I can be misunderstood and I have been misunderstood and the misunderstanding is usually that people some students will believe that what I'm saying is that lack is just generally or always good that, that that's the thing here, that the that we just need more lack. We need more frustration in our lives. And that's actually not what I'm trying to say. Because to be, again, as clear as I possibly can here, people can have too much lack in their lives. And if people have too much lack in their life, if they have too much frustration, if they have too much negativity in their lives, that is not good. It does not lead to a good place. Uh, let me describe that a little bit for you here. Uh, so I think that there are tons of people, more, more people than there should be, who cannot meet their basic needs, who cannot get the things that they need in order to keep themselves alive. They can't get the, the shelter. They can't get the nutrition. They can't get access to the medicine or the clean water or whatever. They need to keep themselves alive. That is way too much lack for anybody. And if there is anybody who's in those kinds of conditions, who's in the conditions where they can't get the things that they need to keep their bodies and the bodies of the their loved ones alive, that is atrocious. That is terrible. That and that is there's no excuse for that as far as I'm concerned, even though it happens a bunch, it's inexcusable. That's too much lack. And when people are in those kinds of conditions, when people are in 
conditions where they are just lacking, 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 what I think happens is they become desperate. And when I say desperate, I mean that they will do anything to get their needs met. Anything. When I, when I say anything, let's, let's stretch that word out a little bit here. If somebody is desperate to get money because they need money so they can transform money into all the things we can transform money into, they will become prostitutes. They probably didn't want to become prostitutes. <laughs> it's not probably what people have as like a giant career aspiration, right? But under the right conditions, when there's too much lack in their lives, that can be one of the ways that they get desperate and the ways that they go, well, this is a way that I can get what I need. So I will, I will do it. But I'm, when people do that, a lot of times they're doing it out of desperation. Uh, when people get desperate, they can get violent. And by getting violent, that I, I mean that violence can be turned in a couple of different ways. One way it can be turned is inwards towards the self. If people are so desperate, if they, they're so, there's so much lack in their life and they get to that point of desperation and they, you know, they're, they're trying to alleviate the lack, they're trying to get their needs met and it's not working, they can become, they can move from being desperate to being in despair. And when people are in despair, what I think tends to happen is they get suicidal. They go, you know what I'll do? I'll just kill my body. I'll kill this thing that is me, that is living. And, you know, that'll be an end to this pain and suffering, which living has turned into for me. It'll, the pain and the suffering is not fun. The experience of lack, the lack of the things that I need, the lack of comfort, that is so hard that I would rather just turn off life altogether than continue living. So that's another thing that can happen if there's too much lack in our lives. Additionally, the violence that people can find themselves uh, drawn to when they have too much lack and they become desperate can be directed outward towards other people, other institutions, other things. This is people who I think become those sorts of individuals who engage in mass shootings. These are the people who become suicide bombers, right? They're the people whose lives, you have to really think of this, right? That what would it take for somebody to do that? Imagine what their life would need to be like. And I think if you do that, what you will probably end up imagining is a life that is so abundantly full of lack a life where somebody has gotten desperate and desperately tried to alleviate the lack and their, their whatever desperate move they've made, it hasn't worked, it's failed. And so now it's just like, you know what? I'll do, I'll do this thing. I'll do this terrible, awful, violent thing, which will probably eventually end in my own body's destruction, but will also destroy other people, destroy other things too. I think that to get to that point, there has to have been a lot of lack. So too much lack, that definitely can and does, I think, really fuel the death drive. I'm going to say that again because I think it's so important. Too much lack. The lack that turns people desperate is the kind of lack that I would say absolutely fuels the death drive, makes the death drive more powerful, makes that the, the jouissance just rush down that mountain towards the, the bottom of the mountain, which is death. That's what happens there.
Now, what I want to do here is sort of invert this, turn it inside out for a second. Uh, there's some people who experience way too little lack. They, they don't experience lack. They don't experience frustration in their lives. This is the person who, uh, it's kind of hard to make a general sketch of this. I'll do my best here. There are some people who are born and the people around them are just so, get so worked up when they're a, a baby and a child. When a baby, when somebody's a baby, when somebody's a child, they get upset because they're hungry. They get upset because they're tired. They get upset because they want things that some other kid has. And sometimes uh, caretakers can overreact to that frustration, which comes from lack, right? A kid lacks something, they get frustrated because they, they want something and they don't have it. If the parent rushes in too quickly over and over again and fills the lack, like make sure that the kid does not experience lack, that can have a really negative effect on a person. The negative effect is that the kid never learns how to tolerate lack, never learns how to tolerate frustration. And if a kid never learns how to tolerate lack, never learns how to tolerate frustration, the longer that goes on, the worse it is because eventually what's going to happen is they're going to you know, go from being a, a baby to a child to an adolescent to a young adult, so on and so forth. And eventually they're going to be in a situation where they lack something and they're not going to know what to do about that. They're going to be in a situation where they're frustrated and they're not going to know how to deal with, how to metabolize that frustration. They're going to be totally at a loss because they never experienced it. They had too little lack in their lives. And when people are in that situation, when they experience lack, when they experience a frustrating situation, it's so destabilizing to them because they're so unused to it <laughs> that they become, again, desperate. They, they become desperate to get rid of the lack. I need to get rid of this lack. I need to get rid of this anxiety. I need to get rid of this sadness. I need to get rid of this thing that doesn't feel good. I need to get rid of this frustration. They, they, and they'll, they'll turn to whatever it is that they think will get rid of it. That might be Adderall. That might be uh, alcohol. That might be um, pornography. I don't know. It could be any vice, really, it's something that somebody could turn to just to like comfort themselves and make the, the negative feeling that comes from lack just go away. And I think that when people are doing that things, what those sorts of things, what they're doing is they're acting in ways that are kind of self-destructive and definitely also destroy things like their bodies and their relationships, so on and so forth. So if, if somebody experiences too much lack, definitely bad. If somebody experiences way too little lack, also very bad. Both of those situations are situations where the lack of lack or the abundance of lack end up fueling the power of the death drive. And the jouissance will flow right into that big kind of uh, trench that, that just flows right down the hill and the jouissance will rush down the hill and people will end up inflicting all sorts of self-destructive and, and violent actions on their own body and on the bodies of others. So that's the first thing I want to say. Too much lack, very, very bad. Too little lack, also very bad because they fuel the death drive. But now that we've gotten those extreme cases out of the way, let's take a look at some less extreme ways that lack, that negativity can also fuel the death drive. So I have a couple of examples in mind here. Uh, I'm going to give you two that kind of stand out to me. So here's the first one. I want you to imagine that somebody, you know, meets another person. They like them. They go on some dates. They like them more. 
you know, they go on some more dates. Things get serious, uh, progress along and along. Eventually, the two people uh, commit to each other. Maybe they get married or maybe they just decide like, okay, we're, we're a serious thing. We're committed to each other here, right? And that's what they do. Then I want you to imagine that one person in this fictional couple that I've just made up, one day they see somebody else and they think, hmm, that other person, the person who I'm not with, they look good. They're attractive. You know what I think? I think that maybe they looked at me and they looked at me in that way that makes me think that they're thinking about me in that more than friends kind of a way. And what happens at that point is the person uh, in this fictional example starts to get really curious about this other person. Maybe they start to flirt a little bit and maybe the flirting leads somewhere and eventually they find themselves having some kind of an affair. And uh, now what I want you to imagine is after that happens, after the affair starts, the person who's uh, you know in this fictional couple, they feel terrible. They feel guilty. They go, what am I doing? My partner, you know, who I've been with and who I've, I've committed to, like, they're great. Like, they're, they're, I don't want to hurt them. They didn't do anything like to deserve this. God, I, I'm such an awful person. And they, they decide that they're, they're going to, they're not going to ever do this again. But then what happens is they see this uh, other attractive person and, you know, the other attractive person is looking particularly good that day. And I don't know, they, they decide that they'll stop having an affair tomorrow and so on and so forth. And then eventually the person who they're with, they find out about the affair and, and that relationship comes to an end. That's the example I want to give you here. So in that example, what I'm going to say, because I've seen versions of this play out in a lot of the couples therapy that I do, and uh, it's interesting. A lot of times when people have an affair, at least the patients that I've had, it isn't because they hate their partner. They usually don't. A lot of times they're like, they, they just, and it isn't even that their partner has done something awful to them. That doesn't happen a lot either as, as well. It's not like people are having like revenge affairs very often. I think what it is, is that people are obsessed with the sex that they're not having, the sex that they lack. When they lack something, they think it must be better than what I have. And so they try to chase down this thing that they lack. And in chasing it down, they actually end up destroying something that they do have a lot of times. This is something that happens a lot. So that's that's what, uh, first example. The second example is much more general. Uh, I talk to a lot of young people uh, as patients and as students and the jobs that I have as a therapist and a university professor. And I'm, I will fairly often hear young people talk about doing something and they'll, they'll describe the thing that they do to me as something that was a quote-unquote bad idea or something that they quote-unquote probably shouldn't have done. And when they say this, a lot of times I'll say, so why'd you do it? Why did you do this thing that you probably shouldn't have done? Why did you do this thing even though it seems to me like you understood that there was going to be some significant consequences for you doing it. And they'll tell me FOMO, fear of missing out, right? So there's this idea, I think, that the experiences that they don't have, that they might miss out on, are going to be somehow more rewarding, somehow better than the experiences that they currently do have that they're actually living. This is the, the second example of it. In both of these examples, what I want you to see is the way that lacking something, uh, in the first example, the sex that somebody wasn't having until they were, and in the latter example, the fear of missing out, the, whatever the experience is that somebody doesn't have, this is the kind of thing that can lead to people 
destroying what they do have. What I'm hoping you can see here is how the it's the lacking something that makes it appealing. If you have something, it's you know standard. It's it's just what you have, and it's it might be nice. You might actually really enjoy what you have to a degree, but the power, the pull that comes from the things that you lack and wanting to get those things that that is quite powerful. And this is another way that lack can in fact empower, embolden uh, the death drive, pour gas on the fire that is the death drive. That can happen too. And all of this has been an attempt to set up some stuff so that I can make my final point of this podcast. The final point being that even though lack, negativity can, and in the examples that I've given, does fuel the death drive, it can also be used as a way to act as a braking system on the death drive. And that's where we're going to be going in the next section of this podcast. How lack can be mobilized, can be used as a braking system, as something that slows down the death drive, as something that makes the death drive less operant in our lives as opposed to more operant in our lives. again you can't see this but every part of this podcast that you have heard before now was recorded the day before today and i was recording it in the basement of my house in this small little office room which is a nice room for recording it's got good acoustics and uh, you know i i was recording and i wanted to do the whole podcast but i ran out of time and you know therefore I am finishing recording the podcast the next day. I'm sitting in a totally different place, totally different room. Acoustics in this room, not too bad. And I have got my second son here. His name is Argo, by the way. Uh, He made an appearance on the previous podcast, episode number 011. You might hear him again, kind of making the noises that a three-month-old baby makes. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to tell you that because... If you heard those noises that you might think to yourself, what, what is that? What is going on? What, where is Gorman when he's recording this podcast? Why are these noises only in this one segment of the podcast and not the other segments? Uh, the, now your questions have been answered. But let's proceed into the final section of the podcast, which my intention here is to talk a little bit about some ideas, some principles that might help in how we help answer the question how do we use lack in a clinical capacity you know this whole time i have been trying to argue that negativity that lack that not having things that it's useful that it offers in in a sense something valuable to us and that it can be rather than having lack be something which is awful that we want to always 100 percent of the time avoid see it as something that, that can offer us a valuable sort of experience. And, and I want to get into that a little bit more here. 
Uh, but before I do that, I want to do my best to make a couple of things somewhat clear here. I am not trying to be the be-all, end-all on the idea that lack has clinical potential. I think there's other people who get into this idea and do a much better job than I do. Uh, in addition to that, the thoughts that I'm about to lie out for you here, they're not going to give you like the keys to how to do this, unfortunately. I kind of wish I could do that. I wish I could, you know, just through talking on a podcast, you know, adequately describe and explain the different ways that lack can be used as a clinical tool, but I'm not that smart. I can't do that. I can't tell you everything that you need to know. What I, I might be able to do, what I hope I can do, is say some things that get you thinking about it. If I can do that, I'll, I'll be happy. And that's all that I'm trying to do here, really, is not, not say, here's like the you know six steps to how you use lack effectively as a clinician. Because I don't know what those six steps or eight steps or 18 steps are. Uh, you know, I, I think there's probably a, a different set of steps for every single clinical encounter. And I think that the way that you utilize lack with one person will probably be very unique and not something that you can replicate with another patient later on. I think it'll be totally idiosyncratic in that way. Uh, so yeah, that's what's going on here. What you're going to get is me describing a couple of ideas, a couple of, uh, maybe I'd go so far as to call them principles that I find useful in my own thinking about how to use lack clinically. And I'm hoping that they're useful to you as well. Now that that long and meandering disclaimer has been said, let's get into some of these ideas. So the first idea that I want to, the first claim I want to make, the first idea I want to explore is the idea that if we're going to introduce lack into our clinical work, we're working with a patient and what we want to do is kind of like mobilize lack as this motivating thing for our patient. If we want our patient to recognize, you know, see, experience and acknowledge that he or she doesn't have something and that trying to get that thing that they don't have, that that can provide their life with some sort of like direction, meaning, purpose, those sorts of things. In order to do that, the lack that we tap into absolutely has to be something that the patient cares about. And I say this because I think that this is so often overlooked in clinical work. I have seen so many different clinicians in so many different settings try to say to patients, hey, patient, look, um, you're, you're making bad choices. And if you continue to make bad choices, you're not going to have something available to you. And the something that the clinician is talking about is not something that the patient cares about. I'll try to give you a more concrete example here. Um, I have seen a lot of school social workers say to their patients who are students, you know, let's say a student in high school or something, if you continue to do make the bad choices you make, not coming to school, sleeping through classes, um, getting into unnecessary arguments with teachers and other students, blah, blah, blah. If you continue to do this, you're not going to graduate. They say that, or they say, you know, they say you're, you're basically not going to get an education. And that, you know, whether that's true or not, I think is debatable because I think that a lot of schools will just kind of like socially promote students regardless of their circumstances. But let's put that aside for a second. Um, and, and let's assume that when the, the social worker or clinician says that to a student, that they're being actually accurate and honest, the student might not care. The student might not care at all whether or not they graduate from high school. It might not be something that matters to them. 
And if it doesn't matter to the student, saying that they're not going to get it isn't going to matter to the student. They're not going to care. They're going to be like, oh, really? I'm not going to graduate? Oh, no. You know, they're, they're like, please, no, not that. And, they, and, and they're saying it totally sarcastically. They, they, it doesn't matter to them whether or not they graduate high school. Now, I, I w- as I'm describing this, I want to make something clear. Graduating high school probably would make the kid's life easier. I believe that. But it doesn't matter if I believe that if the kid doesn't believe that. That's the key here, right? Whatever lack we're trying to tap into in our clinical work, it's got to be something that the patient cares that they lack it. They have to, it ha- the, when they experience the lack, it has to have the effect of the, of the patient going, you know what? That makes sense. I am missing this thing that you're describing. I don't have that thing and I want it. If they don't want it, whatever it is, it's not going to matter. So that's my first claim, is that if we're going to mobilize lack, the the lack that we mobilize absolutely must, must, must be the kind of lack that the patient is concerned with, cares about. Now, the second point I want to make here is that that sort of lack, the kind of lack that a person is actually going to give a damn about, that is not something that we're going to, we're not going to know what that lack is. At least I, I don't know what that lack is quickly. I think that's something that tends to reveal itself very slowly and over an extended period of time. This is one of the reasons why I am so attracted to psychoanalysis as a clinical methodology. Psychoanalysis takes a long time. And I, I think that if my experience is representative, and it might not be, but if my experience is representative, people will come into a, some kind of clinical work. They'll come to see a therapist or whatever, and they'll say some version of, this is my problem, this is why I'm here. And I'd say the vast majority of the time, whatever it is that they describe might be a part of their problem, but it's not really the big thing. It's not really the reason that they're there. The real reason that people are coming to therapy reveals itself, and I think it reveals itself rather slowly. You can ask somebody, why are you here, and they can give you an answer, but their answer is usually not a very accurate one. Uh, And part of the reason I think that people come to therapy is because there is something missing in their lives. There's something that's not there that they want to be there. And I think that, you know, eight, nine times out of 10, they probably can't tell you what that thing is right away. It takes this, you have to go through this kind of weird, meandering, kind of messy and unpredictable process in order to arrive at some kind of an understanding of what that thing that, that the person wants but doesn't have, what that is. And you can't, you can't microwave that. That is not something that you can microwave. It's something that you have to slow cook. It, it takes a long time for it to reveal itself. It, and and this is, I guess, I suppose, my argument against any kind of therapy, which tends to describe itself as brief. You know, uh, I I don't think. I mean, maybe there's some value in some brief therapy. There probably is. Uh, it's just really hard for me to see it because I I have not seen that kind of therapy be super effective for for people. It, it's it's if you try to microwave something that you can't microwave, the result is, I think, usually not very desirable. It's usually not very good. And when it comes to building up a good 
actionable kind of understanding of whatever is lacking in a person's life, whatever they're missing, but they want to have, that isn't just not something that you can microwave. You got to, you got to go the long way. That's the kind of the way that I see it. Okay. So that's the second idea. So first idea is whatever it is that whatever lack you try to tap into as a clinician, it's got to be something that the patient cares about. If you try to say like, Hey, you're missing this thing in your life and your life would be better if you had it. The person has to agree with you. That's the first point. The second point is that that sort of lack is not something that tends to show up at the end of the first session, second session, third session. It takes a long time for you to get there. And the way that you get there, this is, this is also very frustrating for a lot of people is not by talking about it. It's by talking about a whole bunch of other things. And as you talk a bunch about a whole bunch of other things that are not this lack, little bits of it emerge and eventually you get enough bits that you can kind of like put them together and understand what this lack might be. But that is absolutely, at least I think it is a very time consuming process. Uh, the last one that I want to talk about here is this idea of distance. I'm going to call it distance between the patient and whatever it is that they lack. And I think that this is probably uh, the most difficult point for me to describe here. So I'll do my best. There's actually a phrase that I, I learned about in, they say this in England, it's mind the gap. And I think this, if I understand it correctly, this is a phrase that came up as people were getting on and off trains. There'd be like a gap between the train car and the station platform. And sometimes people would like step into the gap and that would, they'd hurt themselves. And so there were the announcements would say, mind the gap. And there'd be signs that say, mind the gap, you know, to kind of remind people, watch where you're putting your foot. Don't step in this hole that is this gap, this hole that exists between the train that you're on and the platform that you're trying to walk onto. Uh, or it worked the other way too. If people were on the platform trying to get on the train, sometimes they made the same mistake. So mind the gap, it was a big thing. And uh, I think that it's important for us to mind the gap between the patient that we're working with and whatever thing they lack that we're trying to kind of use to mobilize them, to, to motivate them in a sense. So the, what I've seen some, here's some common mistakes that I think I've seen. Sometimes what people do is they pick a, a lack, they identify something that is not present in the patient's life, and it, it is actually impossible for the patient to do anything about that lack. They, you, you, you say to somebody who's in poverty, for example, hey, you're in poverty, you lack you know, stability and security and consistency because you're in poverty. You know what you should do? You should not be in poverty, right? You should you're you lack affluence. You lack access to basic economic resources. You should totally get access to the economic resources that you don't have access to. I think if you say something like that to somebody, that's not nice. I think that that's kind of rude because it assume they can't. Uh, how many poor people have the ability to do something to address that? Uh, I also see it this way sometimes. It's like saying to somebody who you know, has been the product of a really, really bad education system and also happens to have very little in the way of financial resources, you know what you should do? You should go to college. Is that possible? Is that possible for this person? As they are here right now? I mean, 
I, I think if you you set that up as the lack right off the bat in certain instances, what you're doing is you're just going to overly frustrate the person because you're asking them to do something that they actually cannot do. I think that would be akin to taking somebody who's blind and asking them to read a book that is not written in Braille. I think it would be taking somebody who is in a wheelchair and telling them to run a mile. They can't do that. It's not, and therefore I think it's incredibly disrespectful, very rude to ask people who actually might can't do something to do the thing they can't do. And I think this happens a lot in social services. You know, a different example. I think a lot of times people who are in gangs, why are they in gangs? It's because there's not really any other employment options for them. So saying to somebody who has decided that being in a gang is a way to meet their needs, saying to them, you need to not be in a gang, you need to get like a legitimate job that pays you enough money in order to meet your needs. Are those jobs available to that person? A lot of times they're not. And so that would be an example of making the gap too wide between the lack and the patient. I also think we can make it too short. This is another thing that can happen. I think this probably happens less frequently, but it does happen. So if you try to say to somebody, oh, hey, you're missing this thing, you should get it. If it's too easy for the person to get it, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I think this, I see this a lot of times in couples therapy, right? So say that there's a couple and the clinician thinks that one of the things that this couple lacks is the ability to um, say, you know, what they want to each other. And so they, they're like, okay, here's what we're going to do, you know. Person A in the couple, you're going to turn to person B and you're going to say to person B, this is what I want. And you're going to say it clearly. Oh, and then person B, now we're going to, it's your turn. You're going to turn to person A and you're going to say to person A, well, here, this is what I want in this situation. Oh, look at that. Everybody knows what they want now. Isn't everything fine? Now, you people might be able to do that, but that in and of itself, that's just too little a gap. I mean, that's, that's, there's nothing, I mean, it's not that there's nothing accomplished in doing those things. It's just that not much tends to be accomplished when you do those sorts of things. The, the gap between where the person is, where the patient is, and what they lack has to be kind of like the Goldilocks amount of gap, has to be the Goldilocks amount of lack. And I think, and this is a very general description, I realize that, and I'm sorry about that, but I don't know how else to do this. Uh, what that means is that the lack has to be something which the patient actually, you know, like I said earlier, is interested in, 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 uh, in making it a not lacking thing in their life. And it has to be something that if they put a decent amount of energy into, they can actually lessen the gap. If that's, if that's the condition that you're describing, then I think gap, the, the lack can actually be very motivating, right? So uh, here, kind of a strange example here. Uh, I like reading really, really, really super difficult things. Uh, it's a, sometimes that's a problem. Uh, but it's something that I like, right? So there, there are some books that I have and they're very difficult to read. And the idea that I could like read them, say like in a day or a week, some of them, like that's just not going to happen. They're, they're going to be a commitment. They're going to be something that, that to read this book and understand this book is going to take time and energy, right? It's probably going to take a, some, some of these books, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of energy because I'm going to need to read the book. Then I'm going to need to read secondary sources to understand the book. I'm going to need to read it like multiple times in order to really understand it, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I can commit to say like, you know, reading a chapter a week or something in this book. And, and in, in doing that very slowly kind of like 
take the the lack of understanding of this book and over time if i i stay you know committed lessen that make that something that is not lacking in my life okay that, that that's something i can do that that is possible and i'm not going to just like jump over the gap really fast and uh even though the individual steps themselves might seem like small gaps they're small gaps in a series of a much larger gap right it's like when you play super mario brothers and you have to jump over something and there's like this one little column of brick that you can land on if you you got to have and then you jump again and you, you know it's it's kind of like that i think if you can recreate those conditions i think that lack can be more effectively mobilized in treatment and there's probably a lot more other things that i should be mentioning but i haven't thought of them but those are the ideas that come to mind now and these are some of the ways that i think negativity can be used effectively to and and to kind of try to tie all these ideas from earlier in the podcast together if you can do this if you can identify this kind of lack that i'm attempting to describe i think what happens is the person's jouissance flows into trying to lessen the gap their jouissance flows into making some sort of incremental but consistent progress towards uh lacking less in a certain way and that means it's not just like rushing down the mountain in the crevice that the death drive has created right it's kind of like it, this sort of thing if you can find lack what it does is it sort of redirects the flow of the water off to the side and when you do that what i think ends up happening is that the person uh i mean the water is still moving downhill but it's moving downhill at a much slower rate i.e it is extending the life of the individual so that's weird right the idea that if we can get people to tap into to mobilize around what they're missing in their life what we end up doing is extending their life but to me it makes sense and i hope it makes sense to you too so i've talked for a decent amount of time here uh, on this weird meandering podcast that is the gorman limit episode number 12 and i'm going to stop now uh, but before i do i want to say just a few things first thing thank you for listening appreciate your time second thing damn the demand i can't talk the second thing damn the demand save the desire and the third thing please make some glorious mistakes take care <laughs>